I don't know what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Underground Railroad. We first paint the picture in regards to the time in history, discuss the lives of both William Still and Harriet Tubman, talk about the practicals of the movement, and then we end our discussion listening to some of William Still's accounts that he had written back in his time. We hope you enjoy the discussion. I think a lot of our listeners have heard of the Underground Railroad. Um, I certainly heard of it in school and was taught a little bit about it. I don't remember much. So can you catch us up? What period of time are we in? And then we can start to talk about the Underground Railroad. Yeah. The Underground Railroad was, as most of you know, not a literal railroad. Railroad transportation was the primary means of getting around the country at that time. And so it was like a metaphor that was applied to this whole network that was used to help. They were called fugitive slaves at the time. I think we need to go on a little detour just to talk about terminology. The escaped slaves were called fugitive slaves. And I think it's important the words that we use and to just realize the effects that they have. So really, escaped slaves were trafficked they were kidnapped, and then they were their own life was stolen from them. And by running away, they were refugees who were fleeing trafficking and fully deserving of all sympathy and compassion and care. And yet the label that was put on them was fugitive slaves, and they were shorthand, they were just called fugitives. And that created a culture, both in the North and in the South, where they were just seen as kind of criminals. And we do the same thing today with the language we we use in other areas. Uh, The one that comes to mind is immigration, calling refugees who are fleeing violence in Central America, calling them illegal aliens. It just kind of strips them of their humanity, makes them, like criminalizes them, when in reality they were, I mean, just this week, Ted Cruz was fleeing a storm <laughs> and took his family to you know Mexico to like bring them to a better place and he says because he he loves his kids and wants his kids to you know not be without power and yet we throw stones at at central americans who are actually trying to keep their sons out of gangs and their daughters out of sex slavery by fleeing taking uprooting their lives and coming across the border and then if we call them illegal aliens versus you know, refugees or versus asylum seekers. That language matters. That is actually, as a Christian, a way that we love people is by dignifying them with the words we use. And so sometimes in this episode, we'll call them fugitive slaves uh, at some points because that's the terminology that was used at the time, but sometimes we're appropriate. I'll try to also just describe them as people. And in the Underground Railroad, they were called passengers, as as they just kind of use that metaphor. So the bigger picture of what was going on is that after the Revolutionary War, 
There were some early anti-slavery movements that f- were formed even by the founding fathers. So there was one, the, the big one was the Manumission Society. And those of you who have seen Hamilton, Hamilton was in the Manumission Society. And John Jay was a part of that. He actually got a very brief shout out in Hamilton. So John Jay was like the president, founder of the Manumission Society. And he in Hamilton was the one who wrote five of the Federalist Papers, if you remember that line, where John Jay wrote five and Hamilton wrote the other 51. If you haven't seen Hamilton, do it. You need to. So John Jay got a, a brief cameo there, but he was the leader of this Manumission Society that had hundreds of basically all wealthy, white, powerful men. It was not open to black membership. Uh, free blacks or pre- uh, former slaves were not allowed into the Manumission Society. And it was it had some pretty big weaknesses. It did some good things. It fought for it fought in courts to win legal battles to help protect free colored people who were being kidnapped into slavery. It fought for some law changes to make it more difficult for slave catchers to come up into the north and catch slaves. And they they did fight for a gradual end of slavery in New York, but they didn't really do much to try to advocate for an end of slavery nationally. And they had a gradualist approach. Some of the people in the Manumission Society owned slaves. John Jay, for instance, who founded it, owned five slaves. And he said that he bought them in hopes that basically one, he, his plan was, I'll work them until they pay back what I paid for them and then I'll set them free. But still you can see just like the approach that they took was not slavery is this abhorrent evil that I need to fight. It was kind of just pragmatically, I am going to work towards the end of it, but in a way that doesn't rock the boat. So that was the Manumission Society. Um, what years are we talking about right now? So the Manumission Society started shortly after America became an independent nation, after the Revolutionary War. Okay. And it went for a long time. It went all the way until like 1849. Okay. Here. So it went for a pretty long time. The Quakers of New York actually petitioned the first Congress to try, and Benjamin Franklin joined in and was part of this, petitioned for slavery to be ended right off the bat. And the Manumission Society actually didn't endorse that effort because Hamilton and others thought that it would disrupt the compromise that was struck and it would basically break America into two pieces. Mm. So you can see Manumission Society was not very radical. So then more, at the time they were seen as radical movements, but more progressive movements formed over time. And those were anti-slavery societies. It was kind of like the, the... term that was popular for them. So there's, they were mostly like local movements that kind of teamed up together. So there's the Philadelphia Anti-Slavery Society was pretty central to the Underground Railroad. And there were other anti-slavery societies. And they operated the Underground Railroad, but they also just worked outside of just helping escaped slaves to freedom. They, they did a lot of like legal efforts, a lot of petitioning, a lot of advocacy, a lot of had politicians that they were coming behind and pushing legislation through. There was were, like a lot of... Were these a lot of white people? In, in so these? the anti-slavery societies were different in, than the Manumission Society in that okay. they did allow black membership and they allowed black people to speak and write for them. So there maybe was still some under the radar white supremacy that was going on in, in the dynamics there, but they, they were a lot better. They okay. allowed black membership. 
And about 200,000 Americans joined anti-slavery societies in the 1830s. Wow. Which, for context, the American population was a lot smaller back then, so 200,000 adjusted for the population back then. That's even, even more impressive. And so there was a big movement towards anti-slavery societies, particularly in the North. Early abolitionists actually, especially Christian abolitionists, we're going to talk about in the next, next episode that we released, uh, early Christian abolitionists, they tended to not be very radical to the point that they even were accepted in the slaveholding South. They weren't aff- overly offensive because like the Manumission Society, a lot of them had a very you know gradualist approach where they were like, I don't want to take away your slaves. I just want to kind of create a long-term phasing out of slavery. And But the, the anti-slavery societies were different. They were more principled and like, we need to end this now. We need to you know break unjust laws as necessary to free slaves. So a couple things also to add to the picture before we kind of, I, we're going to get into a couple actual stories of people because I think that's going to help. I don't want this to be an episode that's just, facts and information. We want to get into some stories. But before we do, just to set the stage, a couple more things. The Underground Railroad was just the escape routes in basically of slaves who were fleeing, fleeing slavery from three border states. It wasn't like there were other routes of slaves fleeing south into Mexico, south before I think eighteen or seventeen ninety, there were Florida was a destination for escaped slaves. Uh, when it was a Spanish territory, and then uh, slaves escaped through other routes over to the Bahamas and other places. So the Underground Railroad was basically only used by... 90% of the slaves who were freed or escaped through the Underground Railroad came from just Kentucky, Maryland, and Virginia. So just to know that there was a broader picture of what was going on, and this is just kind of focused on this one area of the South and the fugitive slaves who were finding freedom through this route up north into Canada. So I want to get into a story here of William Still. He was known as the father of the Underground Railroad. And uh, we are going to talk about Harriet Tubman because she's probably the most famous person in the Underground Railroad story. Right. But uh, we're also going to save some information about her because the government is pursuing again, putting her on the $20 bill. And so whenever that happens, we'll think it'd be cool if we did an episode yeah. that went into her life more deeply. So we'll talk about her a little bit. But I wanted to kind of focus on William Still. If you've seen the Harriet Tubman movie, he was played by Leslie Odom Jr. So he was in there and he was a close associate of Harriet Tubman. But backing up, I want to just talk a little bit about his family because his family story is pretty cool. His father, Levin Still, had been a slave in Maryland, was enslaved to a cruel master who died, and the master's son basically took over the estate. And Levin did a brave act and went to this man and basically said, I would rather die than continue to be a slave, which was a risk because you're the reason why masters didn't kill slaves very often was because slaves had a lot of, they were the, in those days money, the cost of a slave was about the equivalent of thirty to $40,000 in today's money. And so a master would not, they would whip their slaves and they would be brutal to them, but they would not often kill them. But Levin went to his master and basically said, I will die before I continue to be a slave. And the master at that point then doesn't really have a financial reason to not kill Levin. But the master 
was willing to basically kind of compromise with him. And he said basically, okay, if you can, I'll give you overtime work. And if you can earn enough money through this overtime work to buy your freedom, then I'll let you buy your freedom. So Levin's bravery was rewarded and he had the opportunity then to do, and he took on all the overtime work that he could take, all the extra you know, jobs that he could work in. And over time, he earned enough money to buy his freedom. And to the credit of the master, he actually had integrity to actually let him go free. And I think at that point, he knew that Levin wasn't going to, would rather die than continue working if he, you know, backstabbed him. Mm. So Levin went free, but his wife and four children remained in slavery. So Levin then wrote letters to his wife. He moved up north and he wrote letters to his wife and kind of helped facilitate her to flee. And the Underground Railroad didn't exist at that point, really. But Levin's wife, Sydney, took her four children, and this is incredible to me, to, she escaped hundreds of miles up north with four kids. And at that point, as a black person, any white person who sees you traveling is going to like wonder if you're a fugitive slave, especially if you're traveling with your children. Black people weren't allowed to ride on horseback because white people thought that if, if we don't let them ride on horseback, it'll make it harder for them to flee slavery. They weren't allowed onto any kind of transportation without papers showing that they were a free person. And so it was super difficult and arduous journey to, to go anywhere as a black person. And then to do that with four kids and to keep them alive and just an incredible act of bravery. But then after a few months... Slave catchers found her and brought her back into slavery. At that point, the former master basically more carefully watched her and particularly more carefully watched her two older sons that were six and eight years old in hopes to basically deter her from running away again. And so she fled a second time after, I think, a couple more months. She fled, made another escape attempt, and she successfully fled again, but she had to leave her two older sons behind. And she brought her two younger daughters with her, which is just really tragic. It's just like unbelievable to imagine as a mother having to leave your six and eight-year-old sons behind. The only consolation was her mother was still there and basically agreed to care for them as her own. So she like arranged for their care but had to leave them. And actually as a crazy ironic twist to the story, 50 years later, the older of the two sons, Peter, actually came up north and encountered William Still who at that point was he like he'd never met him before because William was not born yet at that point but the older son ended up encountering him and uh, and Peter helped or uh, William helped Peter reunite with the family well the other sibling was killed mm-hmm. and that's how they they had a discussion and found out that they were related because the other sibling that was left with Peter he he was whipped to death yeah i didn't even know that that's crazy yeah yeah i didn't see that so Levin then, because his, the slave catchers had caught his wife, Sydney the first time, he moved his family out to the country and they lived out. They, he ended up buying 40 acres kind of in the middle of nowhere and had a family farm and they had 18 children. So a huge family and they, their land was their own and the fruit of their work was their own and the sons went into the surrounding area and were able to perform work. They didn't get a very good education because they were in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't really a thorough public education system at that time. But they were able to get some bits of education and just had the dignity of building their own lives. William then 
went off after he, you know, he became an adult. He went off and he ended up working at another farm, the farm of Mr. Borton, and basically just proved his value to Mr. Borton to, to the point that he let him kind of run the whole farm. He just, and William learned a lot about management and entrepreneurial work and he made a good bit of money. And then he went on from Mr. Borton's farm to Philadelphia. And he was hoping to just, hey, William was a super entrepreneurial guy. He ended up starting a bunch of businesses later on. So you can just see his tenacity and his willingness to take risk and try to build something of his life. But he had a couple hard knocks early on in Philadelphia. And he, to some degree, he like barely made it through his first winter there. It was really a struggle. He didn't really have work. He picked up odd jobs. He had like a business idea that kind of flopped. And he just struggled through his first winter. But he ended up landing work with a Mrs. Langdon Elwin, who was this wealthy, aged white woman, white widow. Um, but she was actually good to him. And she had a lot of intellectual conversations with him. And she saw his humanity, gave books to him. She like invested in him to try to like help him develop skills. And she, she ended up moving away, but she gave him a really great glowing reference that he was able to use to find other work. And with that reference, he landed a job at the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, initially as a secretary. But he pretty quickly proved his value. And he, I think his title remained secretary for a a good bit of the time, but he really did a lot more. He kind of was super involved. And he ended up through the Anti-Slavery Society writing and working and doing a lot of uh, advocacy work to and slavery and changed the laws around slavery. He also was instrumental in 800 fugitive slaves escape from slavery and find their freedom. He was called the father of the Underground Railroad. Little known aside about William Still is that later on in his life, he led a like a bus boycott that was, I mean, in a lot of ways, like a, a prelude to the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, it was a boycott of the public transportation system in Philadelphia, which was segregated. And he led a boycott that successfully desegregated the transportation system. He, he writes about it a little bit in his book on the Underground Railroad. Uh, and we're actually going to link to that in the show notes and recommend that you, you guys check out the book that William Steele wrote. It has more about his life and has a lot of the stories of escaped slaves that he recorded. And also, he was a close associate of Harriet Tubman, who... She escaped through Philadelphia. And then many of you know that she, after escaping from slavery, she went back and multiple times rescued family members and kept going back over and over again 13 separate times. She risked everything because if she was caught, she would be put back into slavery and potentially killed. She became prolific to the point that she probably just would have been killed if she was caught. And she went back 13 times and rescued more and more of her enslaved family members and then just other people. And so she was just an incredibly brave woman, super industrious, rescued 70 enslaved people without losing any of them. And then she ended up doing a lot of other work, advocacy. She, during the Civil War, she was, she like led troops and worked as a spy. So we're going to do probably more on her in a, a forthcoming episode, but she was an incredible woman. So how did she do, how did she, how did she help free enslaved people? Yeah. 
it's kind of a question of how did the Underground Railroad operate on a practical right. level. The reason it was called Underground Railroad is because basically people, once they made it to a station of the Underground Railroad, they were not seen or heard from again. And so it's kind of called the Underground Railroad. But really, the way that it worked is a lot of times they, there were stations along the way. And, and when you say stations, you're saying like, it's like, probably like people's, people's homes. People's houses, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were called stations, but they were really just people's homes. And it was not a top-down organized network. You couldn't have anything written down. You couldn't have anything official. You didn't even want to like have one person who had the whole picture because then if they were captured and interrogated, you know, they, they wouldn't want people to find everyone in the network. So really what the Underground Railroad was was kind of a more informal bottom-up network that was organized through these hubs of these anti-slavery societies. But it was a lot of local networks that kind of overlapped and intertwined with one another. And so if you're operating a safe house or a station along the Underground Railroad, you didn't necessarily know where everyone in the whole network was. You just knew where you, like the couple places where you can safely send people and the couple places where they come from and something about like the code that's used. So they had like some code. So for instance, they would send telegrams and there were certain words that they could use where, for instance, if they said that they were going to send someone to one station but then use the word via what route they were going to send them in the telegram, then they knew that that meant like oh, pick them up a station before that so that if the authorities intercepted it, they wouldn't know where to get them. So there was like a shorthand and code that they used. But it wasn't like a super official organized network. It was just a bunch of people in local networks industrious people figuring out a way to safely move people at night. And then sometimes they would forge free papers and move them through public transportation. Sometimes they would just flee through the countryside at night from one station to the next and get there by morning so that you're not seen. And so, yeah, I think Harriet Tubman, I think a lot of, I think they used a lot of different methods, but I think a lot of her work was just kind of over running through the countryside at night from safe house to safe house? Well, in black people specifically, like enslaved people, they were geniuses. I mean, they incorporated fighting, running for their lives, running for freedom. They, they, they used coded language. They used music. They, they used the Bible, even the stars. I mean, they... When I just think about how an enslaved people could map out freedom from an entire system that was built to capture them, enslave them, kill them, sometimes running with children, babies, elderly people running through swamps. And if they weren't running from white people, they were running from the elements. They were dealing with snakes and, I mean, just... It, it just it's just crazy, but yeah, they would where we get Negro spirituals from when you read the words or read the lyrics of spirituals, and you know songs like "Follow the Drinking Gourd" and just "Deep Rip," like so many songs that have this coded language for escaping to freedom mm-hmm. for people, many people who couldn't even read because reading was against the law for enslaved people. And they would, or using the book of Exodus, using, you know, stories from the Bible to basically hide their, plot, their, their, their plans in plain sight. So in the middle of picking cotton, they're communicating to each other via songs and just 
all mm-hmm. kinds of symbolism on how they would escape to freedom and hide all of that in plain sight, mapping it in their hair with braids, braiding their hair in ways that using basically braiding their hair as a map to where to go. I mean, because many people, they they may be may have been enslaved on a plantation and didn't really know the scope of the land that they were on mm-hmm. or the land that was maybe outside of the little community or the plantation that they were on. So I, it's just people always talk about, I know there's a lot of shame with slavery and, and black people will say, you know, we're, we're more than just slaves. We, you know, I'm tired of slave movies. And me personally, my, my great, great, grandmother who passed away when I was 20 years old, she would tell me with great pride that her father was enslaved. And it would always impress me at what an amazing, impossible people that we were, that we even existed was just a miracle. And that people who were treated less than animals, who were considered three-fifths of a people just, just to pad Southern politics, to keep them enslaved, but not considered human, considered soulless, that they would be considered, that they would come together and they would plot and they would plan and they would navigate this operation of freedom. Mm. And oftentimes going back to get other relatives. I mean, just this relentless pursuit for freedom. It's amazing. It's just like, it's a story that's akin to the story of Exodus, which is why Enslaved people, black people identified with the children of Israel, the Hebrew children. Hmm. So. William still has a pretty cool quote that ties in real well with what you're saying. So it's just on the cunning of the slaves. So I'm going to read this. He says, If the master was heard to curse Boston, the slave was then satisfied that Boston was just the place he would like to go. Right. Or if the master told the slave that the blacks in Canada were freezing and starving to death by hundreds, his hope of trying to reach Canada was made tenfold stronger. Yeah. And they just, you know, had an ear out for, and many times would just from young childhood imagine and picture freedom and escaping to freedom. And in the South, there was this white delusion among the, like a deliberate delusion, I think, among the the white slave owners that the slaves were just happy and content and cared for. And when all of these, you know, over the course of the Underground Railroad, you know, tens of thousands of enslaved people are escaping and fleeing at risk, like risking their lives to flee up north. It was a direct affront to that narrative mm-hmm. of this idea that the slaves were just like contentedly working in the system that God designed for them. And so then the North had propaganda campaigns to try to, or sorry, not the North, the South had propaganda campaigns Mm -hmm. to try to explain why is it that these people are fleeing. And so then they blamed the North and they said that the Northerners were agitating and were trying to lie to the slaves and to lull them away because they wanted to infringe our property rights and everything. And, And then the other interesting kind of dynamic that like a result of the work on the Underground Railroad was that slavery in the three states that were kind of those border states where most of the escaped slaves were fleeing from, slavery became not very profitable because so many, the fee or the reward that was given to slave catchers, even if they did succeed in catching a slave, was the modern day equivalent of about Mm $6,000. And then 
tens of thousands of slaves were escaping from the Virginia, Kentucky, and Maryland. Mm-hmm. And the result was that the South, the rest of the South, worried if slavery becomes so unprofitable in these states that the states abandon it, abandon slavery, then basically we're no longer going to have a majority in the Senate to protect slavery. So they were worried that it was going to kind of chip away at slavery in general. And so even further South states, even though they they didn't really lose a lot of people to the Underground Railroad because being further South, it just was too hard of a journey, they still were very active in pursuing laws and changes that would prevent the Underground Railroad from operating. And so what they did is they in 1850, passed the renewed fugitive slave law. There was a fugitive slave law that was passed shortly after America became a nation. The initial fugitive slave law put the onus on mostly on slave catchers and slave masters to catch slaves. But the, the new one in 1850 put a lot more onus on the government, local and federal governments, to remand slaves who were caught. And so it was a big part of what caused the Civil War was that the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act had, it was awful in many ways. Mm -hmm. So a few things that were awful about it, it resulted in all kinds of kidnapping of free black people in the North. In addition to criminalizing the act of helping, of the Underground Railroad, of helping fugitive slaves flee, they basically, it removed any due process for anyone accused of being an escaped slave. And so all that was needed to pull someone into slavery at that point was the sworn testimony of someone saying that they're my slave. And whether or not that person is actually an escaped slave or is a free black person, they had no ability, there was no jury trial. They were not even allowed to testify in their own defense. There was no due process. And the the person, the magistrate who, or the, you know, oh, I forget what the term was for the position, but the person who was the judge essentially deciding whether or not to remand this person into slavery actually received a bigger compensation hmm. for that decision if they decided in favor of the slave catcher. They received like $10, which was, you know, $300 in that, those days' money. If they said, yes, this person's a slave, and they received half of that if they said, no, this person's a free person. So there was like a financial bribe on the, there was no due, due process, and there was like a, finan- a de facto bribe for the officials who were deciding if they remanded the person into slavery. And then there also was monetary rewards for police. If they caught escaped slaves? Slave patrols. But then even in the North, where so in the South, the police system kind of evolved from slave patrols. Right. But in the North also, police at that point had a financial incentive to capture not just escaped slaves, but free blacks also. And so there's actually flyers. I read for research of this episode, you can see flyers that were posted by anti-slavery societies in Boston and uh, in other cities in the North, Philadelphia, that were warning free blacks, do everything you can to avoid the police because they are now in league with the kidnappers who are just kidnapping free black people and taking them south and selling them as slaves. Well, and another thing that does not get talked about often is that there was racism within the anti-slavery movement. So there's so much respect and admiration for Quakers, but many of them were racist. Mm -hmm. And many of them would speak against black abolitionists. They would hijack the movement, just like we see kind of today with white liberalism, where people decide that they're woke 
and their their white savior complex will have them think that they're doing a much greater work for the cause than amplifying, you know, than, than black voices that need to be amplified. Mm-hmm. People like Frederick Douglass, who was a part of some anti-slavery groups, he was an abolitionist. There were fellow white abolitionists who would who are documented in in newspapers saying horrible things about him because they wanted to be the saviors. Mm -hmm. And then in the Underground Railroad, it's so interesting. There were many abolitionists who still believed that black people were inferior and believed awful things about black people, but they were against slavery because of their Christian conviction. So they would be against slavery because of their Christian conviction, but still believe in their Christian minds that black people were less than. So black people were not only, like the, we, we want to think of the Underground Railroad as this amazing movement of, of freedom, but there was abuse and there was racism within the Underground Railroad and within abolitionist groups against black people. But it's like for black people and enslaved people trying to flee, it's like pick your poison. Mm -hmm. So black people having to navigate (laughs) going from being whipped or being abused, being raped, but then, you know, being just looked upon with disdain by the very people who are supposed to be helping them that are against, oftentimes that are against slavery, but still consider black people mm-hmm. inferior. Yeah. It's, it, and, and then for people to come at Harriet Tubman or come at Frederick Douglass or William, you know, even lesser known abolitionists, black abolitionists, because they wanted to be the champions of the movement. Mm-hmm. And they felt that black people need to be put in their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see that in the Manumission Society, not even allowing black membership. But then on, on the whole, I think the multiple historians will say that free blacks were the cornerstone of the Underground Railroad. Yep. And I don't think they get all the credit that they deserve. Absolutely that, not. Yeah, there were white people that helped along the way, a lot of them for mixed motives. A lot of them it was, uh, I mean, and, and I don't want to lump everyone together either way, but a lot of the white people who did help, it was more because they wanted to you know, be moral as they saw it, not because they were motivated by actual love and that was saw the full humanity of, of the black people they were yeah, helping. Yeah. Sympathy, not equality. Or just obligation and duty. Like mm-hmm. I'm gonna help free you, but you're still less than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna help free you because slavery, you know, the Bible says that, you know, they, they, they're convicted that slavery is wrong, but they're not convicted that racism is wrong. Mm-hmm. And we see that, that we're going to talk about in the next episode, our next episode, we're going to talk about some of that with some famous people along the way who we'll have quotes from who basically said overtly that slavery is a great sin, but racism or uh, racial prejudice is not. Right. They would just tell you. That's their view is that, yeah, I think black people are inferior, but I think they shouldn't be enslaved. Right. And the whole inferiority campaign of scientists and philosophers and just notable white people in America, that whole campaign to smear blackness mm-hmm. and to deem it inferior, is, it's, it's a trip. But yeah. it's so funny how history always repeats itself. And we see the same thing with the white feminist movement, how it is not included uh, black women in the suffrage movement. And even today, and we see this amongst in, in white liberalism, 
where oftentimes they can be just as offensive and harmful in the things that they say and do. It's 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 yeah. crazy. Before you wrap this up, I wanted is it safe to say that there were this was going on all over the country, maybe not at this scale, but there were probably is it safe to say that there were multiple underground railroads? Yeah, I think not so much in the deep south where there was it was just too geographically distant to have right. like a established escape route. But in any area where there was a border between slave states and free areas, there were routes that where enslaved people would flee. So at the you know Mexico border, at the border with Florida, like I was saying, coastal regions, like anywhere along the coast, there were captains who sea captains who either would take bribes to take stowaways or who would just some of them they wanted to help free enslaved people. So some of them it was like philanthropic, some of them it was just they would take a bribe. Any kind of bordering area, uh, there was activity that was akin to the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad is maybe a little more organized than some of the other areas. And then not to, there's also Native American support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, they operated stations along the way. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And they don't get, indigenous people don't get the credit. Now some some indigenous people actually owned slaves, but there was a lot of support and anti-racism and abolitionist work from indigenous people groups. Mm -hmm. So I want to wrap this up. I just first just want to read some of the accounts that just sample accounts that are in William Still's work. Because again, we're going to be sending you guys to, it's a free Google book that you can just get online. And so just want to kind of read some of these stories and encourage you to go read more of them. So William recorded, some of them are like long accounts, and for the sake of time, I just kind of selected some of the shorter ones. Uh, But he has some longer accounts of uh, people's stories who he recorded. This is William writing. Uh, Some of this is quotes, some of it is just me summarizing. Alfred is a 23 years of age, in structure quite small, full black, and bears the marks of ill usage, which I think was like a shorthand for just having been physically abused, whipped, and beat up. Though a member of the Methodist Church, his master... Fletcher Jackson thought nothing of taking the shovel to Alfred's head or of knocking him or of stamping his head with the heels of his boots. Repeatedly of late, he had been shockingly beaten. To escape these terrible visitations, therefore, he made up his mind to seek refuge in Canada. Henry Anderson was sold to a trader who was so cruel that he left his wife to flee to freedom. He fled from Beaufort, North Carolina, which still describes as a region of quote, generally great brutality and cruelty. Charles and Margaret were husband and wife and managed to flee together. William notes that they were clearly in love. It's kind of funny, he just, in his description, just you could tell that they were in love. Margaret had health problems, but she was not, on account of those health problems, expected to work any less hard. And so Charles saw her suffering and decided he had no choice but to risk fleeing to freedom. And still notes that Charles was worth $1,200 and Margaret was worth $500. William Henry was 20 years old when he fled from Baltimore, leaving his mother, four sisters, and two brothers for Canada. Charles Henry was 30. He left his family, including his wife, Anna. Still writes, the separation was so painful, as was everything belonging to the system of slavery. There's another man also by the name of Charles Henry, still described that he was a good-looking man, only 20 years of age, who possessed double as much natural sense as would be required to take care of himself. He left his master, John Webster, because the man was taking sexual advantage of him. 
Still writes, these were all gladly received by the vigilance committee and the hand of friendship warmly extended to them and the best of counsel and encouragement was offered. Material aid, food and clothing were also furnished as they had need and they were sent on their way rejoicing to Canada. I want to read one last letter that William still includes in his work. It's a letter of a husband who has escaped from slavery, writing back to his wife, who mm-hmm. is still enslaved. Dear wife, he writes, it's, uh, Jamie, Jamie Macy is writing it. So he writes, Dear wife, I take this opportunity to inform you that I have arrived in St. Catherine this evening. After a journey of two weeks, I now find myself on free ground and wish that you were here with me, but you are not here. When I parted, I did not know I should come away so suddenly, but for the causing you pain, I left as I did, and I hope that you will try to come. I cannot tell you how I came, for I was sometimes on the earth and sometimes under the earth. Do not be afraid to come, but start and keep trying. If you are afraid, fetch your sister with you for company, and I will take care of you and treat you like a lady so long as you live. The talk of cold in this place is all humbug. It is warmer here than it was when I left. No more at present, but yours in body and mind. And if we do not meet on earth, I hope we shall meet in heaven. Your husband, Jamie Macy. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon. We are at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. You can support what we do for $5 a month. And every 10 episodes, we donate all the money that we raise through Patreon to a black or brown owned organization. Our next donation we are making to The Witness. On our next episode, we will be discussing the Southern Baptist Convention. We'll leave you with this quote from Nina Simone. You've got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details